0: Uh, yeah. Oof.
1: Okay. Enough of all that. Enough mm-hmm. of that. We should actually start talking. 2020 has been a horrible year. Let's talk about something. Hey, about exactly. Dr. Dennis and Mark Miller.
0: Mm. Mark Miller is only one story, though. I mean, I it's... know,
1: but, but still. <laughs> anyway.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> But nuts? I'm Jeff Lester and welcome to another episode of Drock, where we read through Judge Dredd, the complete case files in order, starting from the very first appearance of Judge Dredd and continuing until either one of the hosts or the character themselves drops dead. I, as mentioned, am Jeff Lester and the person doing all the smart, talented thinking is my co-host.
1: I'm definitely not. I'm Graham McMillan. Hi, everyone. We're we're definitely going to drop dead before dread. Sorry.
0: <laughs> I I feel like drop dead dread is got to be if nothing it, else was a, a a cover blurb on 2000 AD at some it point. It has right? been right, yeah.
1: I mean, if nothing else, drop dead Fred the film came
0: out at some Ex- point. Exactly. So, so you know yeah. they did drop dead dread, uh, which is fun to say. Uh, so anyway, yes, we are coming to you live from Roger Melli, the man on the telly block, to talk to you. <laughs> wow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I did some research, Graham McMillan. I had to, to talk to you about Judge Dredd, the complete case files of uh, volume 18. Uh, Graham, I believe you mentioned you would cover what that entails.
1: Yeah, so uh, Case File 18 covers 2008 Progs 804 through 829 and Magazine Volume 2 issues 12 through 26. It was all published in 1992 to 1993, and some of the stuff really feels like comics from 1992 and 1993. <laughs> uh, it is, for the most part, Ennis. Garth Ennis does. All of the 2080 stuff, right? With the exception of one story, which is written by a very young Mark Miller. Mm-hmm. John Wagner does a lot of the
0: magazine stuff, but Alan Grant does a few stories in there as well. That's right. That's right. I, in fact, looked because I uh, had intended to open this episode by saying something um, faux witty like, "So, Graham, should we talk about the first half of the book or the readable half of the book?" And. Oh. So yeah, that's, that's
1: me, but also not inaccurate. Let's be perfectly honest.
0: Yeah, it is true. And so the two thousand and eight, two thousand AD stuff covers approximately the first hundred and sixty-six pages of the three hundred-page volume. You know, counting Indica and other stuff, and then the rest is the magazine. So it's 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 close to a fifty-fifty spread. And I have to say, thank God for that, Graham, because I do not think that I have could have taken. It was – the first half was such a slog. I've got
1: to tell you, and I've already said this in passing to you, but I started off Case Files 18 going, oh, you know what? This this end of stuff isn't that bad. I guess he really did find his footing. Right. And I was wrong. Yeah. That is 100% either wishful thinking or Stockholm Syndrome because even the first story, which I thought was the competent one, Mm -hmm. is – a mess yeah. objectively yeah but like i it, it's tempting to say that almost all of ennis's worst impulses
0: shine through in this book well you know that's at very... least Ennis on dread i should say yeah that uh, you know because uh i was actually going to the, this volume was so bad and 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 it's not as if you know, Ennis is any stranger to the character 2000 AD by this point, because it is the third volume, at least, with his stories. I forget if he jumps in at the very end of Case Files 15 or if it's really 16. But it's, you know, depending on how you count, two years into his run on on a you know weekly title, that really would make you think that... Uh, essentially the person has found their footing. And like you said, some of the longer uh, progs or longer storylines of which there's a couple, most of them run in one or two parts, but some of them run three or four. You at least sort of start getting a kind of an opening whiff of competence. Uh,
1: It's, it's more mm Annecy.
0: you know, mm -hmm. and that's not necessarily good Mm, right right because
1: well it's it's more recognizably ennis as we know him now yeah but that also basically means the the jokes and the the you know previously we've talked about ennis's love of like dread as like macho character yes and you get that heavily in like things like raider Oh. You know I mean, like Raider is is nuts, but also Raider is a recognizably Ennis
0: story. Oh, very much so. I mean, it's it's sort of a prototype for a lot of Ennis stories that uh, are, are later to follow from him, and it has a lot of those contours. It's interesting because one to me Raider is also the story where you almost get closer to Ennis. Stumbling toward uh, the sort of thing that Wagner does very well. One of one of my big complaints in our last episode is this idea that Ennis does not have any interest in uh, essentially other characters other than the Dread. He just doesn't. He he mm. just can't be arsed, and that really cuts against the spirit of what Wagner and Grant did before him, where. If nothing else, I mean, sometimes it was in a jokey way, and usually it was, but but there were always elements where, if nothing else, Wagner and Grant were able to milk a certain amount of, of tension from a story based on the idea of, like, either you started to care for the person, the non-dread character in the story or the, the non-dread character was basically the protagonist of the story and dread was an antagonist.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean it was it was we've talked a lot in the earlier episodes about how there's a certain crossover between dread and, and Eisner's spirit. Yes. You know, and that's that's something that Eisner did. The longer the spirit went on as well. Yeah. The the spirit is the background character and the story's really about, you know, guest star of the week. And Ennis does that in this book. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, you know it's it was nice. I, I he, he they're done really shoddily, you know. Like you've got the 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 last night out story.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah,
1: the, the judge who suddenly has six hours to live. Yes, yeah, and yeah, yeah. dies genuinely suddenly.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, but it goes in like one last roundup with dreads, mm-hmm. you know, or Raider or other stories where it is the other characters exist. Yes. You know, previously we basically said there's dread and
0: there's backdrop characters. That's right. There
1: are other characters and it's a story here. So.
0: Yeah. Which I think helps. Uh, there's two things that I want to say before I go in swinging with the night stick, so to speak. And that is one, one thing that I think uh, uh, I want, I wanted to say, was that when I started looking through the stories, they are almost all five-pagers. Every once in a while, Ennis gets the the luxury of going up to six. Um, like maybe Last Night Out might be six, for example. But considering how much Wagner and Grant sl- like kind of kept... Uh, Dread started off at five, then started moving to six, and then maybe seven, I feel, was kind of the standard. And if they were really allowed to cut loose, they would go to nine or ten. And by contrast here, from what I could tell, the, doing the, the count of the stories from the magazine, Wagner and Grant are ha- have nine pages to work with, which by... The standards of the American comics market sounds cruel, but you know, to the British comics market is actually pretty luxurious. And
1: yeah, and that was one of the appeals of the magazine. Yeah,
0: and 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 it, one of the things that'll be interesting to talk about for me is how much, um, how much room that gives them, and because they. They both write relatively tightly in their own way. Um, There's some really interesting stuff happening there, at least in terms of the actual comic storytelling, that you sort of look back at Ennis' work, and it's like he couldn't really even approach that in, you know, five pages. That being said, a lot of his longer stories, uh, like Innocence Abroad, which is, I think, only four parts at, you know... Is something like at that point twenty pages, which is longer than the American comics that he's working in at the time, and still markedly worse. Which leads me to the, my other theory, and also my shout out to the uh, to our city, our block that we are calling from, is the idea that I started thinking like, ha- like halfway through the unending torture, I'm like, well, maybe this is what they want. You know, like maybe this is like, there's only so much we can really go for ineptitude in a way. Um, You know, Ennis is kind of dashing the stuff off, but also with sort of the quality of the art. I just started thinking, and and I believe this will open the, the doors up to you if I can ever get to the end of these tumbling clauses, is... Viz Comics uh, was founded in 1979. Its largest success was right around now. Like the early 1990s circulation for Viz peaked at like 1.2 million copies. That's at least according to Wikipedia. And so I'm hoping as, you know, a dumb American, I can get maybe some insight from you, is it possible that in the early 90s with 2000 AD with their awareness that the pipeline that they had depended on of kids coming up through the rest of the British comics line and then being now old enough for an older 2000 AD was so much of that having atrophied with whatever it was Earthling's 8 or whatever the the proposed spin-off mag for younger readers that didn't get launched. Is it possible that they were trying to do something that would appeal to the Viz crowd or other comic readers? Or am I mistaken in, or is that just a mistaken hypothesis? I I
1: think it's not impossible that they were hoping to pick up some of the Viz crowd. I don't think they necessarily are doing that with the Ennis stuff here. Mm -hmm. Um, As much as I think it's possible that Ennis was influenced by Viz. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think there. I don't think it's a cynical. Well, let's try and appeal to Vizot readers as much as maybe Ennis was was had that sense of humor himself and was a reader. Right. Um. You know, 2080, very close to this period, like maybe a year later, I think would legitimately try and do a Viz story. Oh, Big it's Dave. Big would come
0: Dave. Along. Right. Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But I. I don't think dread's there. I think what's happening a lot uh, in in the Ennis stories of this era is he's still. Desperately trying to do what he remembers the Wagner-Grant story is doing. Mm -hmm. You know, which is mixing action-adventure with comedy. And the comedy is social satire. Mm -hmm. Or not even social satire. Pop culture satire. Mm -hmm. You know? And so you get in this, you get a blind date joke. A Magic Roundabout joke. Mm -hmm. Both of which are massively overextended. The Magic Roundabout skit is two episodes long. Yeah. And did not have to be. Right. Literally... There was not enough material there for two episodes. Right. But I think that he's – I think that Ennis is – I'm trying to think of a nice way to say this. Ennis' sense of humor is just more puerile than Michael Grant's basically. Yes. Yeah, I think just that's Just in true. general. mm mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I think if you look at everything he did after this as well, mm-hmm. like he really does have – is scatological a good description? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You I know? mean – so... That, that that's what he finds funny. Mm-hmm. That's his idea of funny. And so I think that's what's playing up here as opposed to an actual attempt to do a Viz comic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But again, it's possible that Ennis was enjoying Viz. Many people were at the time. It was massively successful. And the other thing, and again, this is still a, perhaps a year or two too early, mm-hmm. but getting to the era of like loaded magazines, Mm. you're getting to like you know the lads mags and and you know the brit pop era which was this makes me sound like really uh you know detached and and uh superior and i don't mean to but it was more coarse Mm -hmm. it was bass Mm -hmm. it was more innuendo laden Mm -hmm. just uh, just as a whole Mm -hmm. you know and again Two thousand eighty leads into this about a year after these strips, mm-hmm. with the offensive and with Big Dave, and you know you'll get we'll get there with with Morrison's dread from that era, mm-hmm. which is you know we joke about Ennis's dread being a coarsening of what Wagner and Grant did. Morrison's dread is a, an outright parody of it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it it is it is only one of the problems I have with Miller's strip here, is that Miller's strip reads like what someone would write if they had been told about dread mm-hmm. as opposed to having had read dread. Right. And Morrison, I think does the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: Morrison is sort of parodying his own memories of dread that he read, you know, 15, 20 years ago.
0: Right. Yeah. One of the things that was, uh, cause I was in such, uh, unending misery with the first half of the book is when the Miller story kicks in, I was kind of like, that seems weird for ennis like there honestly there were some <laughs> there were there it was just there were tonal shifts and there was also a little bit of unsurprisingly in many ways um i think it is fair to say that mark miller is way more in tune with pat mills uh than wagner and grant mm-hmm. and so One of the things that struck me about uh, his story is that, um, A, that there is suddenly a bunch of exclamation points in captions that you do not get in Ennis throughout. And in fact really was rare to see in Wagner and Grant. I'm like, Oh yeah, I think, I think Pat Mills was a big fan of this. When he starts talking about the tap tax bandits, it was like, yeah, that seems it's with the exclamation points. I'm like, yeah, this seems very Mills. And the other part of it is almost a step further and we'll see whether or not this is the case, but if nothing else, Miller cannot bring himself to, to, sympathize with dread or kind of there's a little bit of the there's the happy birthday joe dread story that miller writes very much feels like uh someone who feels that it would be uncool to show this character any sympathy you know what i mean like there's a lot of uh sense that he is thumbing his nose at everything yeah,
1: very, very, very much, and, and 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 his dread is is a cartoon. Yeah, even more than Ennis's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's literally tears. You know, someone does something nice for me. He's like, I don't have time.
0: Right? No, it's literally yeah. The first page Come shoot is. you. Is is like them singing like Happy Birthday, or he's a jolly good fellow, and he cites them for singing over the the sound level or whatever, which is just such a cheesy joke, you know. And it goes on like that for and five or six it pages. It echoes at the last page. Yeah, yeah. Where the judges buy him presents, which is in itself
1: is insane.
0: Yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. But
1: then he's like, give it to charity.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. It just uh, so. So there's Miller there, but yeah, uh, part of why I was thinking about stuff like Viz is there's a story, The Craftsman by uh, Ennis and uh, John McCrae, and it's McCrae painting it. And it really does, I think, look lovely for a story that's basically hot garbage, but it looks like a Judge Dredd version of you know the wacky packs that i grew up with as a kid like super super kind of almost um taking real heavily from kurtzman and elder you know the the wacky packs which were led up by art spiegelman way back in the day did parodies of various as stickers of various like commercial products and it it essentially ends up being I think for a lot of people know it that the garbage pail kids essentially being the apotheosis of that but looking at the craftsmen and looking at just sort of how um deranged mcrae goes to making everyone look uh I was like huh maybe you know at a certain point I'm like maybe this is supposed dread is being like almost all but editorially mandated to be a humor strip and and kind of in that sort of way that you know raider aside like most of the stories are like you said kind of scatological kind of gross bodily humor kind of all um I just kind of, you know, I was like, well, they have the magazine. Maybe they were trying to split the differences in the magazine is dread for adults. And now with 2000 AD, we can try and roll dread back to quote unquote, the kids, the kids being like, what do 11 year olds like? They like stories about hooking up loogies and, you know, people breaking into zoos.
1: Yeah, you've literally just reminded me that there is an entire story about a guy who, who spat, and caused a terrible disaster. Yes, it's yeah, it's it's the there is a lot of broad comedy, mm-hmm. and on the one hand, that's very Ennis. Mm-hmm. Like innocence abroad, the first story in the in the book mm-hmm. is very Ennis, and not just because it's very like oh, and here's the incompetent Irish people. Mm-hmm. It just as a tone, it feels very earnest. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the 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 greedy criminal who's undone by the incompetence Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: Mm -hmm. know and the 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 heroes or the the anti-heroes sort of plod through it and succeeds not because of their own behavior Mm -hmm. but because of the 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 failure of the of their opponents Mm -hmm. but you know it's it, that still doesn't feel as broad as, you know, the Magic Roundabout story, or the the Hawk and the Belugi story, yeah. or, you know, basically more than half of the Ennis the things here. Absolutely. Like the, again, the Blind Date episodes, the, mm-hmm. the McCray episode you're talking about as well. Yeah. But... I, I think you might be onto something in terms of they're trying to differentiate it from the, the magazine, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure it's editorially, will tread a humor strip as much as this is what Wagner thinks, uh, what Ennis thinks he can do in the space. And also, for want of a better way of putting it, he's not very good at being funny.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm.
1: like the the jokes never lands
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: like they're not even really jokes they're the most half-hearted things ever like what if blind date but one of them's actually a murderer right you know or the the christmas carol parody mm-hmm. it's all of that stuff is really really flat yes really really lazy really really lifeless right in a way that again i don't really like hennis but it's shockingly beneath what I expect from him.
0: Yeah, no, because I think um I think Ennis is a dude who um tends to work I mean, you know, as someone who is a fan has been a fan of his work uh for a pretty big period of time, someone who started reading Preacher like somewhere in the early twenties. <laughs> um, and then, you know, was able to jump back and, and fill in my, my collection. Um, and I, as we talked about had, I had, you know, followed some of the Hellblazer stuff and liked it, but just, you know, not, not hadn't followed it very consistently. Um, I, uh, I, he works best. Well, there's, I think the two things that help him are he is better when he is, has the better the artist the better ennis's humor tends to work and ennis's humor also tends to work better when it's moments of character interaction so you know with with the slightly broader pointing towards satire i'm thinking of some of the more absurd stuff that happens in preacher or hitman but what helps is is that you know Mac- McCray keeps Hitman relatively dialed down in terms of the character interactions, and of course, Dylan on Preacher is fabulous with his storytelling. So once you yes. have characters sitting around and talking and sort of teasing one another or getting into shitty situations that like people drinking in bars might get into, it's a lot. It it. It rings a lot more true and is a lot more satisfying and entertaining than what we get here. Now, I have to say, there are parts where I did crack a smile at a couple of the jokes. Like, I, in in Innocence Abroad, when um, the uh, gangster who's running the, the club, uh, Odilligan's, gets the picture of the before and after of mixods I I gotta admit, I smirked. Or I think in the... There's a character named Flashback Gordon or something, and I'm like, oh, that's, that's sort of, you know, yeah. But it's never above a kind of half-wry...
1: It, yeah, it's like, huh.
0: Yeah, exactly. Kind of like, huh. And then the rest of it just doesn't... I mean, there's it's, yeah, with... Without character, and that's the other thing that I was thinking is, is you know, uh, what feels like a lifetime ago. I talked about how I felt like the the second great character that Wagner and Grant uh, create in Dread, after Dread, is Mega City 1. And there's no real sense of the Big Meg, as people call it here. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... A lot of scenery for sketches to happen, I
1: guess. It's so strange because, in many ways, I think that Ennis does world building here better than he has managed so far in Dread. Mm-hmm. And in other ways, it feels like he is doing world building for something that is not Dread as we know it. Yeah, right. You know, like the very concept of Raider the first page i was like if he's a retired judge why didn't he take the long walk right right exactly you know yeah that that like immediately doomed the story for me Mm -hmm. but but at the same time you know you you i I think he is trying to do something resembling world building even if it never goes anywhere the kind of dead man Mm -hmm. kind of builds on judgment day Mm -hmm. and suggests that he's he's got some sort of plan you know mm-hmm. the, um, the 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 X Men story. Mm-hmm. I think is actually kind of a great idea. Yeah, no, I think agreed. something with that idea, right? But I love the idea that people who get terminally ill uh, notifications that they find out they they are going to die like unavoidably, and they can earn money for their family by becoming assassins. Yeah. I think I think it's a great idea. Yep. You know.
0: Yeah. Agreed.
1: Also makes me wonder that story and the the last night out story make me wonder if annis knew someone who was terminally ill at the time.
0: Because mm. there's
1: two stories about people who are terminally ill in this, mm. uh, and they're both.
0: Well, three. If uh, you look at McSod's, right? Did McSod's kill you, or just like turn you into a monster? Like, well, I mean, you, you look you look horrible, yeah. but I also assumed that it was terminal as well. It's it's a it's a disease that springs on you and destroys your life anyway
1: yeah but like so you get this you get like these good ideas of this world building mm-hmm. that doesn't fit in with with megacity one as we understand it and the judges as we understand them right. the other one is it's unwelcome guests the the strip about you know a judge has been tested by the, the oh SJS yes
0: yeah exactly like that feels, was
1: feels so at odds with what wagner and Grant have established
0: mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You know,
1: while also simultaneously feeling like it's ripping off yes. the devil you know. Mm-hmm. But you you also get, like, I feel that Ennis was trying to do stories set in the Meg. Mm-hmm. You know, A Man Called Greener fits that. The story about the zoo fits that. A, B, or C Warrior fits that. Their stories about, like, citizens are wacky. Mm-hmm. It's just that everything feels so claustrophobic.
0: Mm-hmm. There's no
1: sense that it's, it belongs to, like, the bigger city. As, as people who have been reading it. And we're perhaps unusual in this because we're like reading it at an extraordinarily fast rate. Mm-hmm. But but it doesn't feel like the city that has been established before this point. I guess what well, i mean is like, I think Ennis is trying. I just don't think he's doing well.
0: Well, there, I think there is that. And I think there are some some huge limitations. But I guess this is the area where it really felt to me, how do I put it, that there is no... And I guess that's what, what I mean is to me, it doesn't, there's, there's bits and pieces that feel reminiscent of previous dread stories or suggest that, that Ennis is kind of trying to go somewhere, but, but there's never, um, there, there was always a little bit of a weird sense that Wagner and Grant developed, uh, Mega City One into, like this crazy large place that contained all kinds of multitudes and all kinds of stories, but and I think this is the part that to me is is uh, interesting and maybe I'm incorrect in this is there's a lot of it just sometimes feels in the Ennis stuff. That, like I said, it almost feels like a skit or a sketch. It's hard to believe that anyone else is really invested in what's going on. I, I there's no there's no larger sense of a a world view. Like you know, there's several points throughout. It ha- comes up a lot um, in both the uh, the magazine side and the 2000 AD side that. Essentially, Judgment Day has wiped out so many of the judges that they're they're basically incredibly strapped. There's just not enough of them to go around, and uh, for the most part, there's no sense of hardship. Of that being the case, yeah. Well, there's no yeah. There's no sense of the hardship for the judges. But even if so, there's never really much of a sense of that from the. From the characters in the world, like every yes. once in a while, you kind of get maybe the thing, like you said, the the man called Greener or whatever, where they're like, yeah, with the judges, you know, are are so strapped that that we can do our big, you know, illegal loogie off, and in a way, it feels weird because again, um, one thing I always appreciated about the the citizens of Mega City One is they went through periods of being either comically miserable or comically um, hedonistic and stupid. Um, And, and there was sort of a slider, you know what I mean? Like sometimes they were, they were just, uh, there was such a sense of um, suffering after things like necropolis or uh, the apocalypse war where, you're like, oh, people aren't great. And and even when they start turning towards some of their new obsessions, there's, there's something that seems he- heavily dysfunctional about it, um, as opposed to times where the dysfunction is kind of, I'm going to treat myself by, you know, basically wearing a hat that looks like you know, a butthead on it, you know, or whatever. Giving myself ugly treatments so that I can be the posh guy that stands out. Like, there's, I just don't know how to say it. There's just, there's no, there's no real, um, everything. There's no real city. There's right? no real city, yeah. It's, it's like, like one of the
1: things that's so strange about The Kind of Dead Man is mm-hmm. it is a follow up from Judgment Day. Yes,
0: it is. Like, yeah. it's
1: the first time since Judgment Day you've actually gotten the idea that the city has been impacted by being besieged by the dead Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and even then it's mostly people it's it's because people are explicitly referencing it but also there is a character who you know something happens to him that directly relates the story in no other point of the 2008 strips do you get the idea that the city has changed yes right Right, and it should have. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. you think about what happens in Judgment Day, there should be a, a significant difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, even if it's just that people should be
0: traumatized more. Right, and... and I, I, there, There's no idea of that at mm-hmm. all. Exactly, exactly. The closest thing you kind of get to the feeling of... I don't know, like... Like, there's a point where Raider could be an interesting um set of things into itself as you point out in terms of world building there is the potential for the idea that because the because the judges are so strapped essentially organized crime is coming back in and you have an ex-judge who kind of becomes vigilante and that's the part that upsets the judges more than anything you know like that that's all sort of um strewn about but nothing's really ever connected no no dots are drawn and again there's even even more than with Wagner and Grant um Ennis's stuff is just his his pastiches are super flat and his parodies are super flat here and well there's
1: no there's nothing beyond like it looks like this thing you know, right. but it's got a different name, and maybe it will get violent. Right. right. That's it. There's no joke beyond that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, the Magic Roundabout thing, you could maybe get away with for one episode. But it's two. And then he does the same trick for Blind Date later on in the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but but there's no actual joke here. Mm-hmm. And there are jokes to be made. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, there are jokes to be made and he just doesn't do it because it's much funnier for him to go, ah, but look, someone might get shot.
0: Right, exactly. Someone's getting shot. One of the things that I always had a larger objection about the more that I read Ennis, because um, I, as I said, I sort of started off and i I reading Preacher and this was around the time that he was more or less making hay. He had, you know, shorts uh, uh, kind of like four mini-series, four-issue mini-series like Pride and Joy or uh, whatever the Killer Nun story is, just a lot of self-contained stuff that was very, um, you know, and I was like, oh, these are, th- this is all, to me, in my mind, I was like, wow, this this stuff is really competent, it's good, um, and it's, you know, it's kind of brutal. And then as things went on, there's always for me this this feeling that that still is never quite subsided that Ennis is a always feels like a bit of a bully on the page like he likes making fun of people that are weak and yeah. and that comes across in a lot of the humor here and since so much of humor kind of depends on surprise I feel like every one of these stories part of why it doesn't work is there there isn't much of a surprise here. One of the things that I think is to me interesting about Wagner and Grant is I could at least go back and look at you know every case files that that they wrote and find at least one or two stories where it ends up being really funny because it goes for a twist that I did not
1: Expect. yeah it's it's not just ending on the haha they got hurt
0: yes exactly and i would say haha they got hurt is 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 one of ennis's two default modes here and the other one is something that pops up briefly in raiders where it's like oh that person got hurt it's poignant you know and yeah that... it, okay
1: i i have a question about mm-hmm. that because you, you mentioned you know Ennis. For essentially being a bully mm-hmm. in, in, in these things. How does that play into the thing we've both commented on, which is like Ennis kind of playing into like being pro fascism? Right. Um Does it? Like am I just drawing a connection that isn't there?
0: No, no, no. I mean I, I think I think this is this is the the thing about I was
1: gonna say there's a whole thing that just is consistent through Ennis' Dread, which is
0: he, his firm
1: belief, at least insofar as the world of dread, mm-hmm. but I think it honestly goes beyond that might make right? Mm-hmm. Like 100%. The strongest are in charge and that's fine.
0: Well, so, so with Ennis, I think that there is a, <sighs> It, it, it's it's essentially buying into a very strong trope in men's fiction, which, which is that, like you said, might makes right, but essentially that, that might is the only thing that can affect change or that can preserve the peace. And so... In a lot of cases, this is used in men's fiction as more or less the the one part, the call to action, one part, essentially the, the need for men to become uh, hollow, emotionless shells. I mean, it's not described that way, or sometimes it even is described that way. And... Ennis is one of those guys when you look at his long run on the Punisher or even running through a lot of the boys is the Ennis feels that it's super important that the people that, that that people need to be protected and civilization only exists and maintains essentially because you know hard men. Uh, We're out there making the hard sacrifices and the rest of us can't really understand that. And any and essentially um, the hard man is going to always be have his heels nipped at by jackals, you know, the sort of thing, the sort of thing that that anyone who's watched like, you know, 98 percent of Clint Eastwood's serious movies understands right yeah and i think there is something to be said and i was thinking about this because of course 2020 being the year that it is um you know i was thinking of uh cormac mccarthy who's an author who i love who really doubles down on the essentially the view of how incredibly fragile society and civilization is and that at a certain point Um, most of us really don't understand how fragile it is that there's a lot of things that we attribute to nature or human nature or goodwill that are all in many, 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 many cases, things that had to be hard won and have to be actively guarded for and against, I guess. The difference is for me is, is that someone like McCarthy is also aware of, and it occasionally slips a little too much into um, that kind of like, ah, but everyone needs a good woman, you know, that kind of like, but without mother on the hearth, we would all be monsters. And so, but there is, you know, the thing that's hard is, this is this is precisely where fascism comes from. Fascism essentially says like things have gone wrong because society has gotten weak and decadent and now it's the rot has gotten in and what we I need. I alone are, can fix it. Yes. I alone can fix it and or what we need are big strong men being big and strong driving out the parasites. And so the pathological fear of weakness that's at the core of fascism is why I think Ennis ends up being so in or- in that orbit. Because as much as he sa- says and I think really wants to believe it, Ennis is pretty disgusted by weakness. I his scatological sense of humor always strikes me as someone that is actually incredibly grossed out by yes.
1: yes. He's really really uncomfortable. Yeah,
0: he's he's he is uncomfortable with sex and he is uncomfortable with the functions of the body and it's therefore no surprise that what ends up being his Heroic ideal is someone who in, you know, God bless you, Frank Miller, the the person who can ignore the torture being done to their body to be able to, you know, do the hard, tough stuff like I've got a broken nose and, you know, my eye has been pushed back into my duodendum, must keep moving on. Like, Ennis really does, is very much into that, but it is into it as a result of fear. And one of the things that I have to say about Wagner and Grant is there's a lot of things going on with them, but I think they are not as afraid of weakness. Arguably, they're as interested in weakness as they are in strength, and I think the big failure for dread is how much and it's just can't bring in that other part of the equation, you know, and that which is part of the reason why dread is kind of the perfect character for him because dread is. You know, he doesn't shit, he doesn't spit, he doesn't cough, you know. Well, I mean, that's just, you know, going back to
1: Raider, which I think is the most substantial story in Ennis' contribution to this volume. Yeah. It's, on the one hand, it is maybe the most coherent and uh, competent Mm -hmm. story that, that Ennis does, but it is literally comes down to like a pissing match. Right. You know, it comes down to, oh, he's really tough. But is he as tough as me? I'm really tough. Now get a chance to show I'm as tough as him. Guess I wasn't as tough as him.
0: Well, and that, which is fascinating because up until that point, with the exception of the flashbacks that, being, that are put the, to place, sorry, the showdown between... Yeah, the showdown at the
1: very end. At
0: the very yeah. end between Dread and Raider um, is a little bit, and this is kind of the part where I... I'm fascinated by Raider because the way that it is in a uh, proto Ennis story, but that it is a proto Ennis story that is kind of deeply, uh, it, it well for it just doesn't add up. One of the things about it is is that Rader is this dude who was a judge who fell in love and therefore left the force, didn't do the long walk, you know. Then uh, the Apocalypse War happens and his wife, he gets separated from his wife. She's dying. It's. Uns- I was going to talk actually about how much the the dead wife is a huge Ennis trope and a huge, I mean, unsurprisingly, wrote The Punisher for nine years, like is also the key to that character. So seeing a sort of uh, real super sketchy, very different version of that of here's a guy who had to kill his wife because she was in so much pain. And then ever since then, he's been a broken man who, you know, drifted on the fringes, but finally he starts, you know, sticking up for his community. And meanwhile, you keep hearing all these things of like dread saying like Raider was a good, was a good judge, could have been one of the best, but he was always in hampered by being a little bit of a dreamer and being a little bit of a a romantic essentially and the idea that that a uh, raider's romanticism is his downfall is uh weird because Ennis seems to take for granted that that sort of romanticism means that given the chance Raider is going to try and have uh, a an old western style shootout with Dread, thinking he can outdraw him, and that weird idea that 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 somehow like that connection is supposed to be so natural that that it is that it's weird to me. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, and,
1: yeah well, I, I think it's one of those things where. It's so natural to Ennis. Exactly.
0: Exactly. That
1: the idea that anyone else would not have that response.
0: Right. Right.
1: It's unusual.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The idea that when you talk about someone as a romantic dreamer, it means that they, they've they been obsessed with the idea that maybe they could outdraw Joe, Joe Dredd in a firefight. I'm like... That's your definition of romantic dreamer? You know what I mean? Like, that's just kind but, of... But I mean,
1: there's, there's so much about Raider that is horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that, you know, Lola Palmtree returns <laughs> and Raider's like, oh, pretty girl. She kind of looks like Meg's wife. Gotta take care of her. No, it's a trap. But Gotta take care of her anyway. Yeah. Is just fuck and also then he tells his story to her yes and she like is like uh you're still under arrest right it's it's also just nuts yeah or for that matter the raider can then take the
0: bullets out of her gun. Oh, believe me. Other thing, yeah, emptied the thing out like- of the magazine. Where I'm like, wait, it has a magazine? Like I just had that weird that. thing.
1: How can he do it? It's a
0: log ever which we know explode if anyone else touches. The well, book. that's true too, right? Yeah, like yeah, that's a good point. There's there there is so much that was weird in that. The thing that I love that is that is also great, and I think is unintentional. Although I still don't know how is the fact that Lola Palmtree looks nothing like the wife that we see in the flashback. No, I it's
1: hilarious. Not yeah,
0: even I mean, a little. I like, get the
1: dialogue is like, she just reminds me of my ex-wife. And you're like, why?
0: Because she because has a so vagina? R- like, it literally is such a weird, like, I don't know if that's supposed to be the point, but it's kind of that weird, like, it, you don't. You don't challenge it too much because again, because this is so on its tracks here this is this is Ennis maybe doing something new for him in dread, but it is the farthest thing from something being new, so it's you know so it's kind of weird when you have things like that e- even that a priori like dreads like oh, I know, I know what'll get him, and it's like, and then of course, it just ah oh boy yeah
1: yeah it's it's all of it is just a disaster the one other story i want to uh, ask about mm-hmm. as opposed to everything else in the 2000 because i want to say for example the art in this fears from the shockingly bad to the great like i think john bernstaff and raider looks amazing oh it
0: does absolutely john bernstaff
1: and is... raider is so beautiful Mm-hmm. Agreed. there's some really really gorgeous painting in there yeah um you get some mascara in there. You get some uh, Anthony Williams, which is kind of fine in a cartoony way, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, um, which
0: one's Williams?
1: Uh, he does the Magic Roundabout episode and the, the mm-hmm. kind of dead
0: man. Right. Got it. Got it.
1: Yeah. Right. Um, But, you know, Greg Staples is is not the best. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm also, to be honest, not a fan
0: of the Brett Ewan stuff. Yeah, the Brett Ewens stuff looks especially terrible here. It looks very much like, I don't know, like like you wanted to try and do... Um, uh, who's the Johnny Nemo artist who's done some wonderful stuff here? That's Brett Ewins. Is that Brett Ewins? Yes. What happened to him? He looks like a bad parody of himself. It's really... It's really sh
1: Yeah, no it's not. It's like Brett Ewins is drawing like Brett Ewins, but somehow less so.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Very much so Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Johnny
1: Nemo was Brett Ewins.
0: Yeah. Oh my god, he draw he does. He draws like a bad Brett Ewins imitator in here. And it was kinda like, Oh, he's clearly looked a you know, at a lot of the pages of this guy who's it was Brett Ewins? It's Brett Ewens who does the other Ah shit. Why do I keep feeling like it's the guy who um it's not, there's nobody who draws under a pseudonym. It's not, I'm always thinking of shaky Kane, but who's the guy who was doing the, the gorgeous looking art in the, it really was Brett ewens, huh? Wow. Yeah, I really I'll have was. to look I'm it sorry. up. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. But the, the other story I was going to ask about is the PG maybe story.
0: Oh yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about it because of course you were Mr. like PG Maybes one of my favorite characters. And I, I love remember... PG Maybe. And I get so upset at the story. I get so
1: upset at oh, the story. Oh,
0: completely. Yeah, it's a it's... And it's, it feels weirdly passive
1: aggressive swipe at Wagner.
0: Mhm. Mhm.
1: Don't get me wrong. Ennis is a big fan of Judge Dredd is the best because he's the hardest. Therefore, he's the best. Right. But the PG Maybe story, like, you don't catch PG Maybe. And I hate that it ends with him going, you're 18 now. I can arrest you. Like, literally just pisses on the entire concept.
0: Yeah. No, no, no. No. I mean, that's it. The PG Maybe story feels like a tremendous pissing on the concept. Because there's a few points where... Like I'm not super crazy about PJ, maybe, um, but I did appreciate. That's your wrong, Jeff. Well, I understand exactly. Uh, and and I just have to say that PJ yeah. maybe is great. Well, I I do like I do like PJ maybe, at, at, especially as it went went on, went on. The first few stories, I'm kind of like, ugh. this the very first not feel well, because the very first one is yeah.
1: very much just like it's a kid and he's he's evil, right? And it's only when he becomes a recurring character that you get, like, the things that make him really interesting.
0: Well, yeah, to me, that, it's fun like, to have. he is
1: actually yeah. super smart, even yeah, though he's, he's very dumb.
0: Yeah, he's he's you know? kind of a talented Mr. Ripley character, which I sort yes. of, which I really like. And I like the idea of Ripley as an excellent foil for Dread and vice versa. Um, and so the weird thing about PJ and the Mock Jock factory is, again, I think the humor is just, is just crap. Um, But uh, there's, there's a lot where PJ maybe is kind of like, Ooh, it's a shame I'll have to knock off on the murders. It makes me feel all tingly in my boy parts, which honestly is not quite how Ennis wrote it because that's a better caption than most of the ones <laughs> in this story, but I was just like, "Dude, you don't get this character at all, do you?" And he really doesn't. Yeah, like
1: he, he doesn't understand like what made PJ maybe interesting. Yeah, he, he writes PJ maybe for whatever better way of putting it, dumb. Yeah. Exactly. And that, that's like, the, that's missing the entire point of P.G. Maybe it's not just that he was young. It's that he actually did outsmart the judges. Yes. Well,
0: yes. And there's kind of a weird, again, because I think Wagner and Grant have different ideas and conceptions of what it means to be, for lack of a better term, uh, competent, you know what I mean? Like PGA maybe is um, not a hardened, violent, toughest of the tough, you know, and therefore he is decadent, which means that he's weak, which means that he's going to be caught. Like, you know, and so, and I'm like, no, the, the again, like you said, the idea about maybe is because there's one of the things that is that, that that Wagner does with maybe up to this is, is that maybe is generally not too bothered by anything. And that is in part why he can sort of think on his feet. Like he is breezily pleasant about most stuff, even some of the people in the asylum, even the people that he's killing. He's relatively, um, he's comfortable with who he is which is a murdering psychopath which is part of why he's such a great match for dread who is perfectly comfortable with who he is which is a murdering psychopath if you i mean i'm sort of joking but you know
1: yeah but also not
0: but also not and so it's precisely because the two of them have a knowledge of themselves And, and, you know, quote unquote, absolutely no doubt about themselves or their place in their universe, that they are able to do what they do so easily. That's part of why they don't make mistakes. And of course, part of, you know, when Dredd starts doubting himself, we, we see what happens, but. Um, there's something where, and I'm, I'm tempted to say that maybe it's the, even though he's an atheist, it's the, it's the Protestant in Ennis that, that means that because PJ maybe just wants to be successful, that it means that he's sort of secretly killing off people and he just can't resist doing more things to, Come up with ways to kill people and then hide the bodies in the grinder. It's like, no, that's very much a. Uh, if he wants something, he will kill to get it. But if he doesn't, like, it's just it's amazing how like, fundamentally wrong it is. And so, <clears throat> for me, there's a little bit of the if he is pass agging Wagner and Grant, then. I, I'm impressed that he chose this particular vehicle to do it, considering how deeply he seems to misunderstand the character. Whereas I just think for him, it's like kind of like the stuff that we saw last volume. And just kind of has a list of the people who've gotten away with it. And he just has no patience with it. Like it would not surprise me if next volume has dread, You know, beat Chopper and throw him in jail. You know what I mean? Like, there's just that, like, there's just something about Dread losing, even in the long game kind of way, that he can't, he just can't countenance. So that's what it felt like for me—is like this huge misunderstanding. You know, that anyone could beat Dread because Dread's the best.
1: Yeah, Dread is—he is—he's the ultimate Dread fanboy. Yeah, and that's—that's honestly his biggest flaw.
0: And it's it's interesting looking at uh throw power overload where he says like, yeah, I'm not I'm not good with the character because I'm too close to it. I'm too much of a fanboy. Uh which is which is great, but he also says things like, Yeah, I mean two thousand AD, look he's talking about more the fact that he departs more or less next volume. And he's like, yeah, I, you know, American comics, there was so much else going on there in terms of, you know, your payment and creator rights and et cetera. But he was also like, yeah, 2000 AD had a lot of crap in it. He's like, and I should know because I wrote a lot of it. And it was the first time I've ever read a self-effacing comment and being like, you're being too gentle on yourself, you know?
1: <laughs> you really did. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: haven't even read Time Flies, Jeff. Yeah, I heard that mentioned, and and was kind of like, oh, time flies. It's re- it's
1: really bad. It's yeah. Really bad. Okay, so just based on the 2000 AD strips, Drucker Dross for the Ennis work here. Oh
0: God! I mean Jesus, it's it's all it's almost all Dross. Um, I would be really hard pressed to find anything that was not Dross for me. Like a, it, it's just the stuff that flopped horribly or the stuff that kind of almost flopped. Um, The challenge would be what's the closest, what's the best Ennis story in here? And Raider. You do? I'm surprised. Yeah. Okay. Good. I don't like Raider, but I don't like any of the stories really.
1: But I think Raider is, like I said, the most competent one and the most coherent one and the one that goes furthest beyond just, again, here is something you're familiar with what if it gets shot right right
0: yeah 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 Yeah. um i think of course in part because the art in raider is fabulous uh I, that helps a lot that yeah really does that help does a help, a help that helps a lot for me i also think the art is fabulous in the craftsman uh which is not something that i find especially great it strikes me as the oh, sort no, of thing it's a terrible story yeah 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 and uh and similarly there's something to the x-men that could have been good um it's a great idea it's a great idea yeah it's
1: just the again the execution is not there
0: yep yeah so but no i think
1: think raider's the 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 best but again you're right it's it's not good mm -hmm. it really (laughs) isn't yeah honestly Really dramatically thrown into relief by the magazine episodes, and um, when I say the magazine episodes, I'll be honest—I mean the mechanismo stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because I would say the mechanismo stuff, but um, you know, you get you get the happy birthday, Judge Street. Dred- you you get two very Christmas. Christmas stories here, two variations on a Christmas carol, and I really love the Wagner one with the gorgeous art by and shit. Unfortunately I don't I looked up who it was and now I don't know if I know. Do you remember who does the Uh
1: it is probably looking oh it's Barry Kitson.
0: Oh right. It's Barry Kitson. Right, right right that did I did look it up and it surprised me. Yeah, Kitson. Kitson doing some amazing work on that. That's I love the color work on yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. It is. It's a gorgeous piece. But um Right, so for me, it's kind of, but the mechanism stuff is fabulous too, and it's and it is so, um, it's such a huge jump. Now, one of the things that I thought was interesting as as we maneuver into it is I mentioned that the Ennis is working with five pages, uh, yeah, Wagner. I, I
1: want to say I, I should go back to that. He's not. I know you think that, but he's not. He's working six pages and some of them go up to seven. No. Did I miscount? Was it all
0: six pages? No. Are you sure? Yes. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. I think I started saying six in part one and then dropped it to five. You're right. He's doing six pages. He's not doing five, which is the amazing early Brutal Dread. But he's doing six. And like you said, every once in a while he's doing seven. There's that horrible Pointless Sugar story which it goes on like up to seven or eight. I'm like, why are you burning pages there? By contrast, Wagner and Grant are playing with nine pages, sometimes ten. But what I do want to point out is is how fabulously the pages flow from one to another in *Mechanismo*. McKen- I like. I went through it trying to figure out where the breaks come. You know. Um, and it wasn't always clear to me because he ha- they have some amazing pages that are, you know, clear cliffhangers. Um, but there's also a lot of pages where it ends on a semi-dramatic note, like, oh, no, it started. And then the next page just cuts to another scene. Like, there's, there's a lot of really strong storytelling here from uh, Wagner. And again, thanks to the lack of, is it higgins who's doing the art on the first mechanism was colin mcneil and the second
1: mechanism is peter doherty and peter doherty clearly someone has gone please do something close to colin mcneil stuff because he stretches himself in a way that he hasn't yeah exactly right
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and it and it worked out well um it's it's a very weird dread story to me graham what do you i i i'm about
1: it? curious as uh, shit. I even said this to Chloe this week. I was like, I want to hear what Jeff has to say about Mechanismo. <laughs> <laughs> I, part of, I, like, I'm, it's one of these things that I'm really biased on, because mm-hmm. like, I read it when it was coming out, but mm-hmm. also, Wagner comes back to Mechanismo a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, the most recent Dreads Hero for 2080 is a Mechanismo story. Wow. Mechanismo continues and evolves f- across the next 30 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Amazing. You know, so like I'm, I really am weirdly, I can't come to it new, for a bad way of putting it.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right. Well, so for me, I'm, I mean, part of it is really um, easy to, I think, overvalue it because after the 160 plus pages of what preceded it, having stuff that looks great and is told well, like suddenly it's like, oh, the jokes sort of start coming off. Like, you know, the opening sequence has someone busting into a detention block uh, and rescuing, uh, you know, a brother rescuing a fellow, you know, uh, his brother who's imprisoned. And then they end up hijacking a, a senior, citizen glee club bus and so at various points they end up singing um you know to to kind of comical effect you know <laughs> uh, but but in a weird kind of you don't make too much of the joke almost sort of thing like there's enough other stuff being layered into it so the the competence Um, that this starts with and then just goes on to get better throughout is, is a real tonic. It's a weird story because it feels very strongly that Grant, uh, sorry, that Wagner is riffing on RoboCop and, um, which is not the freshest target considering RoboCop came out in what, eighty six. Or something? Uh, sure, let's go. Right. I know. Could what be 88. 87, be apparently. Yeah, 87. And this is, you know, 91, 92. 92. Yeah. So, uh, so you're looking at it being very... Well, he, yeah? Yes.
1: He he, is he isn't, though, because he's also riffing on Dread. Well, see... Which is, which is what I really like about Mechanism mm-hmm.
0: as a concept. Right. Right. Okay, well, so... I think it's probably better that you talk about it in a way and, and I circle back just because <laughs> – just because I, mean, I think you,
1: you – shut you up. No, 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 no. For no. people who have mm-hmm. not read the stuff and for people who don't know what Mechanismo is, Mechanismo is, like I said, an ongoing story, something that Wagner returns to repeatedly where the judges essentially try and introduce robot judges. Right. The idea of being or the subtext being. That if dread and the other judges are seen as being unemotional machines Mm -hmm. what happens when you actually have a machine Mm -hmm. doing the job Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting takeaway for me because the takeaway from the first series is essentially that you need the human element right that uh, if you rely purely on the algorithm things will go wrong Mm -hmm. you need human judgment right the follow-up, which also appears in Case Files 18, I would say argues the opposite <laughs> by, by basically saying because the dro- – because you discover in this, the follow-up, the robots are
0: modeled after Dredd himself. Yeah. Although that's – I mean, is that I mean, in the that's follow-up? A, that's in the original. I thought it was just a throwaway line. Yeah, because they mention the fact that they build him off of uh, Dred's comportment as the well, model.
1: I, I, for some reason, I thought that was in the follow-up. But but in the follow up, it's very much that dread's single minded determination yes. is is really the problem in the follow up. That's in the right. first one. It's literally, you know, robots go wrong. Literally, something overheats and they all start thinking. They all start misreading their sensors, and everyone is a lawbreaker. Yes. In the follow up, it's that through. Let's be honest, the most ridiculous coincidence in the world: a robot switches itself back on but because it thinks it's dread it's just like nothing stops the law and i am the law right fuck all of you
0: yes yeah
1: you know so wagner is simultaneously arguing (laughs) that you have have to have a human element but the wrong human element is going to fuck you up just as bad Mm. and that in many ways previews where he goes with it Mm -hmm. although I refuse to believe he thought he was going with it where he ended up
0: Mm. 100%.
1: Um, Not to spoil anything, because we're not going to get to this period in the the case files, but in quote-unquote contemporary Megacity 1, there are robot judges on the street, Mm. and they are kinder than the regular human judges.
0: Oh, that's great. Well, this is one of the things that, again, uh, when I talk about sort of what happened to Mega City One, there's something very strange to me uh, about. There's a little bit of the what the hell happened to all the robots? You know what I mean? Like I kind of had that weird. Oh, right. Right. You know, robots were, were in this strip before, you know, yeah. they've got a storied presence. And in fact, Wagner both nods to that and, you know, uh, by having the second part of the story where you have a, a night watchman and his robot partner. So there is suddenly uh, something closer to the traditional appearance of robots in there but i i kind of had that weird thing of like was there a robot event that i forgot about where suddenly they just all disappeared like
1: yes no because the robot event that sort of explains where all the robots have kind of gone mm-hmm. isn't where all the robots have gone because for the most part the robots have been written out because there were plot devices and now the strip isn't there right right but the large robots were written out in dread in wagner's first dread story
0: which is the robot war? Oh well, no. There's th- that's there's the robot war. W- w- you, you're talking about way back when with. Call Wait, Me I'm talking Kenneth.
1: about like a Prog Ten or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, but, there's that, but there's also more robots sure, around.
1: Walter. Well, if nothing else, Walter. Exactly. All the way through, right? Yeah. But but what I like about Mechanismo, and what I like about sort of the. the continuity for want of a better way of putting it is ever since then ever since like prog 10 dread has been amazingly suspicious of robots with the exception of walter
0: yes agreed
1: walter is the one fucking robot and it, ironically it's the one robot he should be the most suspicious about because walter is fucking inept right but but Dredd has always had this suspicion about robots, mm-hmm. so of course he's going to be biased against the idea of
0: a robot judge. Yes, which I <laughs> which thought like was great. Yeah, exactly.
1: Which I think is a great
0: touch. Yes, well, it's a it's a very subtle touch, which is great. But again, I had that moment of like,
1: but you're where... like, but it, what, like surely someone's thought of this before because we've had robots in every other job, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. I mean there there's a little there's a little bit of the. Um, it, it it was one of those moments where I realized that, like you said, they'd more or less been written out. They they more or less, there's a period in dread where around the time of the apocalypse war, where you said that, you know, uh, Wagner and Grant were kind of like, yeah, the, the city had just gotten too big. But yeah. I feel like that's kind of the point where, you're like, did they also kill off all the robots then? And we never talked well, about see, it. Well, see, that's it. The robots are gone. The gorilla mobsters are gone. Like, there's a lot of... There there, there, there was a lot of playing up the, the goofy sci-fi in the first, you know, four or five years of Dread that more or less, again, feels like it kind of disappears and what you have is stuff that focuses more on the foibles of human citizens of mega city 1 you don't have to rely on you know oh here we are in the dinosaur village part of mega city 1 you know what i mean like <clears throat> if you if you need something that's visually arresting or that has weirdo superpowers you can bring them in from the cursed earth you can have mutants you know, cross the now non-existent wall. So, all the stuff with the ro- the appearance of the robot judges was great, but there was kind of what I both admired about Wagner in the sense of he didn't let his story story get embroiled by oh, let's explain what happened to the robots, or let's lay out what rob what what how robots function. In 2000 AD, because we've seen them before. And in a way, he's just like, no, that doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Like you can throw yeah, it like, it's robots. yeah, it's robots. And it's important to talk about robots, like you said, in part because this is something to be said about uh, Dread. I was thinking about this. One of the things that, that drives me nuts about the Nearly Dead Man to jump back where Ennis brings, cause it feels like Ennis is actually bringing in a little bit of the old dread, the old megacity idea of like, there's a, we, there's like this weirdness that you can't get rid of sort of the way that there's robots or there might be time travelers or et cetera is like, now you've got, you know, the partially dead guys, you've got sort of comical half zombies And he's sort of like, yeah, these are just, they're just going to pop up and, you know, what are we going to do, you know? And I don't know if that goes anywhere. I hope that it doesn't because it seems like a shitty idea. But what it made me start thinking of is George Romero, um, who obviously, as the guy who did Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, etc., etc., is the template for that it's roundly ignored for Judgment Day is like when you're doing stories of the dead coming back and 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 humanity under fire of a zombie apocalypse, that's really Romero's wheelhouse. But one of the things that's great about Romero, and you see this as it begins to shift in something like uh, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, is he's aware of the... He quickly shifts it to the idea that the dead are going to inherit the earth and there's something about that that sticks for him and essentially he has a certain degree of sympathy for the zombies as time goes on. He is aware that it's sort of the nature of of human culture to more or less be replaced by something and for the people going out to be bitter and pissed and feel threatened, but uh, essentially the change is impossible. And so he ends up taking, as time goes on, a more sympathetic view to his mindless, flesh-eating monsters than you would think. And all of this is a super long way to say one of the things I really appreciate about Wagner is how much it doesn't surprise me about Mechanismo is how what starts out being a a unambiguous evil ends up being something that Wagner's like, well, actually, you know, (laughs) and, and that is something that I really do appreciate about his work. Like I said, his ability to understand and appreciate weakness. Like you, he, he enjoys all the tough guy thrills and appeals of it, but sort of in the same way in which Dread can move very easily between being a hero or a villain or whatever Wagner can conceive of and still have it recognizably be Dread. Um, You know, one of the things that is interesting about Mechanismo is how, like you said, it's a critique of Dread. The RoboCop thing is a weird shout out, and it makes me think, and I could be wrong that and this is my go to point unfortunately with a lot of comics creators is at a certain point there's a little bit of the am I capable of being replaced, and what like sort of what makes me me and and I think I talked about that a little bit with the stuff with dread. And dead man, and leading up to Necropolis, that idea that Wagner knows he's going to be leaving Dread, and Dread's going to continue on without him. And
1: and, I, and it's already happening in, the, in 2000 AD. Right. Ha- has
0: happened in 2000 AD. And I wonder if he's contemplating leaving again, or there's something else going on, because a lot of what is the first thrust of. Uh, Mechanismo, the the trial by machine story has a lot of like you're never gonna you need you need the hum, the humanity like it doesn't matter how well of a you know perfectly oiled machine you have you still need people in it and people yes. are by their nature unique even even when it's someone like dread. Um one of the things that I like is is that theme is super buried down. Like a lot of what really works with for me of the first storyline is how wonderful this storytelling is when things start to go wrong with unit 3 and unit 8. And and to me how much what what's great about the robots going wrong in uh the in in the first part of trial by a machine is how much they essentially end up really acting like police you know yes 2020 is very much a great year to be reading this story because there's you know because when these machines go wrong they begin humiliating uh, groups, large groups of innocent people holding them at gunpoint and and really just savaging them or insisting that every person in the crowd is the same criminal and shooting them or beating them. Um, it's... And I love how much I don't think that that is accidental. Like, Wagner is pointing to... Um, basically the, the robots acting very much like he knows the police can act like, and that's, that's really an exquisite and horrible irony in the first part of the story. Um, that's where things get a little weird. I think when, uh, when you have a uh, number five is alive, is a weird again another weird like exactly
1: the, it's a short circuit joke
0: yes exactly like
1: five years after short circuit yeah is more yeah again it's it, it it's true like you have robocop to an extent in the first one but the second one is very explicit like we're doing short circuit jokes
0: yeah we're doing short circuit jokes
1: unlike uh ennis mm-hmm. the joke isn't like you know this thing haha mm-hmm. it's it's it goes far like the joke is almost uh accidental to so the
0: story yeah it's it's superfluous, like it's a weird um yeah, it's almost like a weird curly cue on on the structure of the story and and so it becomes funny again because again it's unexpected, and it's not the entire point of the story which you could figure out by panel two. Of the story, which unfortunately is what happening, is happening a lot with the Ennis stuff by this point. Yeah, no, it's just great, and of course to follow it up with a Christmas Carol story where Dread is Scrooge, um, and you're back in the realm of Dread, a critique of the understanding of Dread's limitations as a person and the way in which even Dread understands it, you know, and, and how it ends up being mm, anyway, I don't know. Uh, Graham. So tell me, I'm,
1: I'm curious where you're going with that. I'm not,
0: I'm not sure. I was kind of like, yeah, the thing that's great about the Christmas Carol is that it is a very, it's, it's a very knowing satire of of A Christmas Carol, but also kind of a little bit of the... Because cause A Christmas Carol is the idea that you've got a horrible Scrooge of a person and they see the error of their ways. And what is funny about the Dread version is Dread being Dread. Of course, he's not going to change. But in that way, you know, part of the fun, as always, part of the fun of of having the public domain Christmas Carol be um, satirized or redone in various formats with familiar characters is seeing like, oh, who's the ghost of Christmas past going to be? Who's the ghost of Christmas present going to be? You know, who's the ghost of Christmas future? Um, but all the things that, that Scrooge is, um, basically shown to be a better way of life has absolutely no weight to dread. And, and of course it wouldn't, you know, there's no real, there's, there, there's something about him that, that. I don't know. I guess what I liked about The Christmas Carol is kind of that classic Dread thing of like, oh, this is a person who's not a comic, one-dimensional comic cartoon, but also is. Or in a way, it becomes Dread is almost a tool for talking about the ways in which people can't change that seems Mm -hmm. to point to a very human thing and so it no longer quite becomes a satirical piss up of say a christmas carol as much as kind of uh not necessarily a rebuke but i think with wagner a counterpoint like i really
1: well it's both
0: yeah right mm-hmm. like
1: you get he gets to have his cake and eat
0: it, it yeah it is
1: a christmas carol parody yes you know it... like very very clearly yeah it's even called a christmas carol yeah i mean you right. know, that it's right there. You do get, oh, look, it's Rico instead of, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you, you get all that, but in that dread doesn't change. Right. is incapable of changing.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: You get something that, for those who want to see it, is sadder. Mm-hmm.
0: In a way. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and says more about Dreads character.
0: Yes. Right. Well... Although one of the things that is, uh, in that, that, in that way, because what happens is, uh, for, for those people who, who have not read the story, um, which is to say the Dread story is Dread is going after an escaped prisoner, uh, mad Brad Marley. So of course the, the, the Marley character and Dredd ends up getting a concussion from Marley. Marley's like, you judges never leave a guy alone. All I want to do is see my family at Christmas. And it has all these people popping up and telling Dredd, like, let him go. Just, you know, it's Christmas. Have some room in your heart. And, and even the, the people on the street who, you know, because so many of the mega city are unhoused now at this point is, you know, streets filled with you know rabble like around open fires, and they're more or less um, you know saying to Dread like, "Let him go. He just wants to see his wife and kids." And and at the at the end, Dread's like the po-, you know someone's like, "Poor guy only wanted to spend Christmas with his kids," and Dread replies, "Poor guy ate his wife and kids. That's why he was in the psycho cubes." And so again, you get that thing of like. Dread's not wrong. So talking about what I was saying about McCarthy and Ennis and things, you know, you get Wagner falling to that traditional men's fiction side of things of like, you need, you need dread. You need, and what's fun, what's fun about a Christmas Carol is it's you need his inhumanity Right after trial by machine makes the argument for you need dread because of his humanity, you know. So there's always, uh, Wagner can always flip that coin. And it's part of not necessarily knowing which part is going to show up in a story that automatically gives it something like tension or dramatic tension, which is it precisely what all of Ennis' stuff lacks because he's a fanboy and because he's obvious about the stuff that he's going with the humor but to follow up a story in which it's like oh yeah you you know you need you need the human nature robots will never actually be good judges because
1: uh,
0: you know there's always going to be failures in the system and then following that up with dread essentially being the guy who is going to be Doomed to have a lonely life essentially and never be embraced by his fellow man will always be separate and apart. But the comedic kicker is that's fine, he doesn't care. One of the things, one of the great things about Dead Man and all the stories leading everything leading up to Dread taking the long walk is it's not the Peter Parker shoving Spider Man's costume in the garbage can because. He's, you know, he, he deserves the right to have a good life. Like at no point does that ever enter into dreads equation when he's doubting himself. It's a, it's entirely about whether or not he could, he's doing what is right, you know? And, and so it's really, to me, really kind of wonderful. in a, in that Christmas Carol, seeing him be faced with all this stuff that totally scared off Ebenezer Scrooge. And Dredd's like, I, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, part of it is, I've got a job to do. This job does need to be done. And you see on the last page, it's it's unambiguous. Like, that was somebody that Dredd needed to catch and put back. That was not someone that ever would have gotten to see their wife and kids. They just would have killed and eaten someone else, probably. Um Anyway, I feel like I'm just babbling on and
1: on, but I'm, I'm so to be like. But Jeff, we don't know. Maybe he, that was just the one person he had to he had to eat. And, you know,
0: <laughs> we, we don't know. We don't know his life. That is true. That is true. And <laughs> it could be 12 years later from now. It could, you know, Wagner could bring back Sad Brad Marley, and and you we know, can, we can only hope. Yes,
1: um, it has to be said. I I love the mechanism stuff. I. Didn't I mean I liked the Christmas Carol thing enough, but I wouldn't. You know, I think yeah. you got a lot more out of it than I did. Interestingly enough, because I bought into it more than I think you did. Mm. Mm. Like I, for one of a better way of putting it, believed that Rico was actually a ghost, as opposed to hallucination. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think changes the reading of it. Well, I think, I think if, if you think of like a one of them is is hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And one of them is an external force. If it's an external force, then Dread isn't buying into as much. Does that
0: make sense? If it is Rico's ghost, it makes even more sense that Dread is able to reject it because it's he doesn't think that it's coming from his head. You well, that's just I mean? it.
1: It's like, that's just like that's why I think that the, the reading is different and why maybe I got less out of it than you. Right. You no, know, like if if it is an external force, then it's much easier for Dread to be like "fuck off." Right. Right. You know. It, it changes the story. And, and my reading of it was that it was an external force.
0: I guess, I guess uh, what I'm saying is, is and, and, and I'll shut up because I do want to hear all your other points, is just more, in a way, it seems to me that part of what works for A Christmas Carol is, is that Wagner is using it to do sort of a classic dread story. But to the extent that it has punch, I feel that it is a dread story that comments. It is also a direct commentary on A Christmas Carol. You know. Yes. No, yes. no, exactly. Yes. I, I
1: like it. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just right. saying I think you get more out of it because of your because you your reading of who Rico and the other the other ghosts are mm-hmm. is that they are actually dread. Mm, and i mm. think that it gives a deeper meaning
0: to it mm. than
1: my reading that they were actually ghosts i see you I, know, yeah. I i i basically read it straight for want of a better way of putting it
0: whereas i think it doesn't really necessarily matter as much i think what's what's interesting and poignant to me is more about the the point outside of dread i suppose whereas i think you're you're sort of you're you're seeing it as a story about the character and i guess i'm seeing it as a story about the Christmas Carol story, among yeah. that uh, that also shines something on Dredd. But the, well, what I was gonna say is, I I think that
1: you know the magazine stories are much stronger in general than mm-hmm. the 2000 series. But the non Wagner stories, the Grant stories, I think are also again kind of throwaway. Yes, and again, you've got Wag- you've got Grant and uh, Hinkleton again.
0: Yeah. Ugh. Oof.
1: And you know that's a that's a particular flavor of thrill.
0: Yes. It is. It's kind of interesting because there's part of me that's like that's the one where where just the art is so insane about the person who dies and then comes back and possesses electrical appliances to protect his family or whatever. This story is is a throwaway that nonetheless feels like two different stories jammed together. Yeah, but visually, visually, like like H- Hinkleton is is. It
1: it's it's very much what it is for one mm-hmm. of a better way of putting it it's just yes. that what it is is not my taste
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's not mine either but i have to say there are some of his panels of dread i think are great because it's recognizably dread but it's also kind of uh just like weird body horror dread <laughs> yeah it's weird body horror dread and there's also a shot of him where he's like wagging his finger where he's like unless of your lip or you're spend the next birthday in a cube where he's got like these like he just looks like a mean old man and I'm like yeah, mean old man, Dread works. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it really works because because by the continuity of the strip, Dread's got to be old. By exactly, this part. exactly. And rather than sort of drawing him just the way, th- there's a little bit of a drawing of like, yeah, this this guy looks like a really fucking fit but mean, you know, I don't know whatever it is, forty five year old dude who is, you know, just is yeah it's just a shit so but the rest of it is like no i the number of times i turned the pages on the pdfs and went oh god my eyes like it's it's not it's not to my taste the story beforehand where it's basically the battle between two motorcycles is so stupid that i'm like why hasn't anyone done this sooner and i mean stupid in a good way <laughs> i really liked Dread versus the Phantom Biker. Uh, It it goes nowhere, but I would happily, if you gave me a choice between reading the Ennis material and reading that story over and over and over again, you know, I don't know, fifteen times. I mean,
1: again, I'm not a fan of the Grant material so much, but
0: I'd rather read the story about the guy
1: who can see the future and sees his own death than I would. Although I think that's Wagner.
0: Is it? I think it is Wagner. That's a Wagner story.
1: I thought that Wagner basically did Christmas Carol and then fucked up until Mechanismo.
0: Nope. Yeah. Nope. Nope. He comes back for this one too and does a, you know, because again, it's it's a variety of things. It's it's better than the other Grant stories, which is probably why you're like, oh, I believe you, Jeff. Yes. Uh, so did, so you say the return of Mechanismo, of course, is. Uh, do you have a preference between the two? I um, prefer the original mechanism more, mostly because of the uh, Colin McNeil stuff. Oh my God, the art is so great! There's that, that wonderful um, shot of matching two page, full page spreads where of
1: the, the robots getting destroyed. destroyed. Yes,
0: yeah. and I, I'm like, I must have spent five minutes just look like flipping back and forth between the two, kind of being like, why is this so strangely powerful? You know, like, I mean, apart from full page,
1: not identical, but similar enough Mm -hmm. splashes that are entirely, entirely silent.
0: Yeah, they're entirely silent. And I I also think that that in that way that I occasionally blather on and on, I think I think that the first Mechanismo story is such a um, it's such a masterclass in storytelling and particularly pacing. So when you get just not one but two of those there's something that somehow doubles down on that feeling of um yeah like you said the silence and just that that sort of moment of timelessness you know it's kind of like when you get the the moment in a movie where like something explodes and they do the freeze frame or something and all but st- start to roll the slow, sad credits and stuff. Very, very interesting effect. I I adored it. So,
1: But yeah, the, the, the original mechanism, I think I prefer to the second one. But I love this. I love how the second one plays off the first. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and to be honest, I, Peter Doherty, Doherty, who's not an artist I've had a lot of time for, mm-hmm. I think his stuff is much better here. Oh, In large part yeah. because, again, maybe he has been told, or maybe it's his choice, to very clearly follow McNeil's leads. He produces much brighter and much more colorful pages, and it works for him.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, everything is not gray. Everything is not completely dark. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that I think really, really works out for his art.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the things that is fascinating about the second half of this volume is how much better I feel the art is generally, but also how much stronger I felt like the coloring was. Like, I... Is it on? Were the magazines literally on better paper at that point, or no? I wouldn't say they were on worse paper. Weirdly enough. Oh, okay. Wow, that's strange. Because they they look really really lush here, in a way. I I yeah.
1: I'm I have to say one of the things I love about the case files in general and Mm -hmm. 2000s reprints in general, is that the the reproduction work is amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The majority of the work here comes from scanned pages from the the comics, not the original artwork. Wow. And you can't
0: tell. There's like maybe there was one point where I was looking at a page and I realized there was a bit of warping at the end. And I was shocked because I'm like, wait, this is maybe that's just a reproduction of one page. But you're right. the The cleanup work is fabulous in that. I did not know it. And. The stuff looks tremendous. The, the majority of, le- of quote-unquote legacy material, the
1: 2000D reprints, mm-hmm. i.e. anything before Rebellion uh, was publishing it, mm-hmm. comes from scans of the original comics. Wow. And that's, that's amazing. Like, yeah. I think the reproduction work is genuinely fucking amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree because it is – it's beautiful work here. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I cannot tell you the huge uh, sigh of relief when I hit the second half of this book, Graham. So it, It's been a while, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, I think we
1: gone through two volumes where we were like, oh, shit. Yeah. And then the first half of this one, again, you're like, oh, well. Yeah. I guess it sucks. I guess <laughs> it's still terrible. You know, and yeah. then you get to the point where you're like, oh, no, good. Wait.
0: Yeah. Right. This, this is good. This is good, um, and I'm just enjoying reading it, and the pages just fly by. So
1: yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, it it's nice to have, and also, I this is clearly not a coincidence.
0: It's nice to have Wagner back. Yes, for sure. Um. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh. Wagner is 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 definitely my um my go-to dread guy at this point now.
1: Uh, so okay. Overall, this volume, Dross or Dross?
0: Really tough call. Really tough call. Um, I'm still, like, I keep wanting to shout Dross just because I feel like...
1: Well, half of it is terrible.
0: Half of it is terrible. And then because, because you've got Grant in there and Grant is competent in the art's okay, like, mm-hmm. but it's not great. Like, it's like two thirds of the book is like, runs the gamut from, well, okay, to, oh, God, no, why. And then a third of it is um, strong, but not, you know, even despite everything that I've said, like, I'm not sure it's the strongest, in part because what Wagner is doing uh, with. with it and Colin McNeil are doing is it's a very um, stripped down narrative. You know what I mean? Like there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of fat on the bone. There's not even a lot of dialogue in that first yeah. Mc, McKinismo story. And that works absolutely in terms of tightening the the screws. But as you can see, my fanboying over Christmas Carol Sort of suggests that I want a little more. You're like
1: I want the I want the text-heavy stories. Yeah,
0: I, I kind of I want I want a little fattiness on the bone. You know what I mean? I, none of these supermodel thin uh, dread stories for me, Graham. Uh, so, so, so you're I, saying Dross? I, I at this point, I'm heavily inclined to say Dross. After complaining about after after singing the praises of this the second half of the book, yeah, I would say that this is danger this is the most dross like in forever how about you drock or dross
1: it is dross but it's but mechanism and the the return to the mechanism are, are are really good and and the best stories i think have been in here since um the devil you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you know like wagner comes back and the quality really does jump significantly and we've so. had you know wagner has not vanished entirely he did mm-hmm. like three-parter last time Mm -hmm. um but but him coming back with what feels like a major storyline
0: yeah it feels like a thing yeah the great the great thing about 2000 ad and and rebellion is the fact that you that we can say that this volume is dross but you know someone can go out and pick up the mechanismo storyline in a separate trade and and get all the good bits basically Yeah, so Dross. Gotta say, for me, it was Dross, Graham.
1: It's kind of sad. Um, Favorite strip? I mean, Mechanismo for
0: me, for you as well? Uh, Or Christmas Carol? I think it might be a Christmas Carol, yeah. I I think Christmas Carol was the one where I just... Every page worked for me. But Mechanismo is a super close second, and of course, is much bigger and has a lot of great stuff. But in terms of so many of the things I love about Dread... I would give it to A Christmas Girl. Um, the, Graham, you're usually in the know about what's coming next. Do you Oh, Jeff,
1: a... <laughs> let me tell you. Let me
0: fucking tell you. In
1: the next talk, we're going to get Grant Morrison and Carlos Esquerra's Inferno.
0: Ooh, ooh, ooh.
1: Which I do genuinely still enjoy, but know in my heart of hearts it's fucking trash
0: well you know
1: and i look forward to you reading it and telling me very clearly just how trash it really is yes
0: it's true i i'm i'm looking forward to it in part because uh i was shocked you know Escara does a contribution uh, it does the other Christmas Carol story in this volume that Ennis writes, the, the Ennis one, yeah, yeah. Which he's
1: not there, and it's so
0: weird, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's um, and and I just I'm very aware of what an incredible um, I don't know how to describe it without sounding dehumanizing. Escara's just fabulous. He's just fabulous. His cartooning in that Christmas Carol piece is great, and it really does make you realize what a what a turd of a story it is, I guess, you know, like there's because Escara can't pull it off. It, 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 I'm very much of the if he can't pull it off, it can't be done. So part of yeah, me is kind of looking forward to it in that weird, like, yeah, th- throw the worst shit at me. If Escara's drying it, I can at least.
1: How bad can it be? Right. Really,
0: the answer is very bad. Well, I went through Judgment Day, which had some gorgeous work by Escara, but was horrible, so I do know better. I do know. better.
1: Oh, on the plus side, Inferno was much shorter. Inferno was only like 8 episodes.
0: Oh, thank Christ. Thank God. So, but
1: still <laughs> <laughs> I I I am just I'm putting that out there for everyone. You might go grab Morrison, He's good. Like right. how bad can it be? It can be really bad, you guys. Yeah. It can be very, very bad indeed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, uh, Thrill Power Overload, where Morrison is painting his justifications for, uh, pretty much everything that he did on 2000 AD in that the summer offensive and, and Big Dave and everything is, um, Morrison at his most uh glibly defensive, so I don't hold out a lot of hope, I have to say.
1: Yeah, it's um Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I I look forward to that. Uh we've also got I want to say the last of the Anna stuff.
0: I that is uh, correct, yeah. He
1: he goes out on a on a on a poor note and we're kind of slipping into some really bad stuff in two thousand eighty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're kind of slipping into some some really not good stuff but i want to say that wagner's still doing some magazine stuff that's good and we're also relatively close to wagner coming back to 2008e
0: mm. hmm. well so i hold out hope
1: it, it, yeah i it, i want to say we're
0: maybe a couple of
1: collections away from it getting like noticeably good again
0: oof oof i tell you
1: yeah sorry other than that, I will tell you that there's going to be show notes for this episode up at some point on Monday, although I will tell you right now what not, knowing what my Monday is like, it might be really late on Monday.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: just I apologize for that in advance, but my Monday is insane this week <laughs> um, on whatpodcast.com. Uh, there is going to be one day. There will be new posts at waitwhatpod.tumblr.com and on uh, Instagram.com for slash waitwhatpods. We have a Twitter account at waitwhatpodcasts. Jeff has a Twitter account at, Lazy Bastard, at lazybastid at l a z y b a s t i d, and I'm at Graham M at g r a e m e m. And we are a Patreon-supported podcast, and in fact, this whole rock thing exists because of Patreon. So Jeff, take it away and tell the lovely people what they've won.
0: Well, as it turns out, you've won this, as Graham points out. Uh, we're incredibly grateful to the support of all of our listeners, the fact that we started doing this podcast what feels like a ridiculously long time ago in some ways, although... It's not even two years yet. Uh not even oh sorry i meant all of our podcasts not drop oh yeah, yeah yeah sorry 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 no 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 no. sorry let let me yes so we've been doing the podcast for a long time and part of that is due to uh our wonderful listeners like you who make it a point to um you know chime in in the comments and send us tweets and keep us advised of things that we um should know and would like and that is wonderful. And then for the last few years, we've had the Patreon where fine, fine people throw us a little bit of their hard earned dosh. I almost said hard earned rock, which is great. Uh, their hard earned dosh uh, to keep us um, inspired and motivated and to, as a way to say thank you. We're incredibly great for that. grateful for that. As Graham mentioned, This very episode exists because of a stretch goal that we managed to hit with that Patreon, uh, as is our previous uh, read-through podcast, Baxter Building, for which we did uh, the read-through of the first 416 issues of the Fantastic Four. You can find that in our RSS feed. All of this stuff is free to you and hopefully of use. It has been incredibly helpful for me The fact that I can actually have opinions about Dread now that I can argue about is a real weird turn for me. I have to say, not something that I would have uh, expected um, five or six years ago, but I'm incredibly grateful for it. Um, That is, is a direct result of you guys. Thank you very much. Um, Special thanks to Dominic El Franco and Empress Audrey, Queen of the Galaxy. We're uh, especially grateful for their continuing support of this podcast. Uh, And as I mentioned every so often, they are also the protectors of our galactic realm and they are doing a bang up job on that. Don't let the rest of 2020 tell you otherwise. Graham? just think what it'd be like if they weren't doing a bang-up job oh my god we'd be in so so much trouble you're right you're right
1: (laughs) (laughs) we'd be in so much trouble and then i'm like jeff have you looked like have you just uh... i just
0: actually to pivot from that graham i like the idea that like eight years from now we'll have graduated from patreon to our own religion where we're talking about you know preaching the 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 good word of empress audrey and Dominic Franco, and you know,
1: I feel that eight years is a very specific number. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Uh, I'm just gonna leave you all pondering that Jeff is actually planning something. <laughs> And also planning something that I don't know about either. Let's put this journey together over the next eight years and see where we are in 2028. In the meantime, uh, we're skipping next week. We're off next week, and then we're back in two weeks with the new
0: Weight Watch. And because it's a Drock, Jeff sings back. Uh, I do indeed. Yes. So right. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, Drock, you're under arrest, citizen. Report to the ISO cubes.